Hey, everybody, it's Eric Clark from uh, Mega Brands. It's Monday, January 22nd, about 930 on the on the West Coast in the driving rainstorm in San Diego, which never happens. So we need it. Uh, a repeat guest, Paul Sankey from Sankey Research um, on the East Coast. You're on the East Coast now, right? You, a lot of times you yep. uh, sound like you're you're recording a YouTube video from Europe, but yeah, I was in London a lot last year. Yeah, I'm often I'm often in Mexico. My wife wants me to go down to Cartagena this next weekend, not this weekend, next weekend. I've heard it's amazing. Apparently, it's a pretty cool place. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So happy to happy 2024, and looking forward to getting an update on energy. You know the the last time we did it, it, it was one of your our conversation was one of the most listened to, which you know always tells you a little bit about sentiment. You know, 2021 uh xle i'll just use that as a proxy for energy was up like 53 i think in 22 it was up 64 so you know there was from a long drought of underperformance and nobody even cared about energy to energy just ripping back when these companies decided to be financially responsible and not drill 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 baby um which had a positive impact on the stocks and now we're in a bit of a, a lull again for energy so i think it's a as a contrarian I love to talk about things that nobody likes to talk about. Usually that's where there tends to be some opportunity. So I'm looking forward to catching up with the expert here um, on energy because I'm certainly not. I'm the consumer guy. So <laughs> you, you and I are in some way, in some ways we're diametrically opposed because when you're doing really well, that means the consumers hurt maybe a little bit and retail sales is a little more squishy. So you know, let, yeah. let, let's, let's talk energy and, you know, what your thoughts are. It's been a, been a, been a tough year for, for energy and not starting off terrifically so far. So what are your thoughts just in general about the energy market and maybe sentiment in particular? Well, you know, the, the first principle is demand and we're at all time record highs. So much like the S and P 500 global oil demand is at just about 102.5 million barrels a day, which as you know, is a lot of oil. Incidentally, China, I think, uses about 70 million. No, yes, I think it's more like 50 million barrels a day of oil equivalent in coal. Um, so, you know, that's just a, a side comment while we're talking big. 102.5 million barrels a day is about a third in Asia, a third in Europe and Middle East and Africa, and then a third in the Americas. And the drivers, you know, essentially China, but there's enormous change going on there regarding electric vehicles. And um, then you have India coming up behind just with strong population and, and low energy use in India. Middle East is booming. Europe is extremely weak uh, and is really screwed by what happened um, with Russia, Ukraine in terms of their heavy industry, which was just entirely organized around cheap Russian gas, essentially. And that's uh, that's gone for a while now because you had the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was blown up by some sort of guerrilla faction, uh, I guess, uh, not guerrillas if you think of them as Western governments, but we're not, we're not sure who blew it up. But basically, uh, that that rules out any swift resumption of major gas to Europe from Russia, even if Putin goes away, which, you know, I think may happen. Obviously, it's going to happen eventually. Um, and then in, in the US, gasoline demand weakness is a feature of the market. And that's actually more about... Uh, ICE, internal combustion engine cars, getting much more efficient. So the average ICE sold today is like 40% more efficient than the one it scraps, which would be a 12 to 16-year-old model. In fact, people are holding on to their cars for longer now. And then at the margin, and it is marginal still, you have the EV thing, which is really not going well. So one of the themes of the past uh, couple of years, and in fact, the past 15 years, has been that electric vehicles remain the slowest adopted major consumer project product in history so you know the first electric vehicles were essentially available 125 years ago and you just had a very poor take up indeed of these things um even with the success of tesla which has been a huge success uh the rest of the ev makers are kind of in disarray now of course on the other side going all the way back to china evs are, are booming absolutely booming in china and and China has got to the point where they're now dumping batteries in the EU. But from the Western side, we're just not seeing the kind of appetite for EVs that um, you would have thought 
10 years ago and 10 years ago when we wrote about it we were also disappointed you know i mean it, it we thought by 2020 almost everything would be hybrid with a lot of electrics and now the boom is actually in hybrids and then petrochemicals remain strong which is basically oil uh, outside the us and um that's i think tends to be driven by by sheer weight of global demography so the single most bullish aspect of the current oil market set up on the demand side is 8 billion people in the world of whom, you know, whatever number do you choose, 2 billion, 3 billion don't actually use any kind of commercial energy whatsoever yet. Um, so the numbers, which I've, I think I quoted a few last time, is basically the average American uses 20 barrels of oil, maybe 18 barrels of oil per head per year. Europe uses about half that, 9 or 10 barrels of oil per head per year. And then in China, you're probably at uh, 2, 2.5 barrels per head. And in India, you're at 1 barrel a head um per year and so the potential there for uh continued growth in oil demand from emerging markets remains high there's some interesting things going on with nigeria building the biggest single train refinery in the world that's starting up right now which will change oil balances so the demand side looks good eric the problem has been to to cut to to to, to close it off the supply side is stunned us to the upside we never thought you could get to 100 million barrels a day of production as i said demand is actually at 102.5 million barrels a day now and within that context you have two three four million barrels a day of spare capacity particularly in saudi arabia and also in the uae then obviously as long as you've got that spare capacity the potential for oil to greatly surprise to the upside in prices is very limited because obviously if the price starts going up towards Saudi's target of probably $95 oil. Um, they need about $80 oil to balance their budget. And we think they need $60 oil or below in order to smash US production growth, which has been the single biggest oil story on the supply side of the past 15 years and has been completely remarkable. Um, you know, what you saw in 2008, the US was importing just about 10 plus, 10 plus million barrels a day of oil. 10 billion dollars a day in value 100 dollar oil now we're exporting 2 million barrels a day so that's an incredible shift at the margin a 12 million barrel a day shift in the margin thanks to u.s production growth and of course from that you've also got abundant uh, associated natural gas which comes out with the oil which is effectively negative price and then anyway abundant gas in the u.s from the marcellus which we call the saudi arabia of natural gas so gas prices remain cheap and under pressure and have been very sloppy this winter even with the weather that we've had when you add all that up together um because of the spare capacity overhang the market is not excited about oils as you said they're excited about ai they're excited about nvidia and if you look at the market making record highs it's semis semiconductor equipment nvidia that's driving the market to record highs oil is languishing horribly we've gone down to 3.6 percent of the s p 500 we were under 2% of the S&P at the lows in 2020. We got all the way back to above 5% of the S&P during 22, as you mentioned, very really the strongest year for oil we've seen relative many years. We were 20, 25, I think, plus percent outperformance against the S&P for the oil group, which was the best performing sector in the market. But last year was tough because Saudi got into cut mode and because there was too much supply and not enough demand, even with strong demand. I think the market is now pricing perhaps even AI as having changed the dynamics of global oil supply to be abundant. And therefore, there's no reason to get excited about these names because the upside in oil is, is pretty limited and the downside is, is pretty much that the economy comes and gets you. So as we sit today, it's kind of tough to get excited until we get through that spare capacity in Saudi. And at the moment, seasonally, you're not going to do that because it's a very weak time of the year for demand. So, so when does that pick up? Here. Uh, it starts, I mean, essentially, spring. the refiners turn around sometime around now, and then they ramp up uh, consumption of crude oil, and they have more of a struggle to make the summer grade gasoline into Memorial Day. So the typical run in oil starts in January, and then runs into Memorial Day and peaks out in the summer. And that's essentially just following the track of the US refining business. Right. So it's yeah. not a bad time to think about a contrarian buy here. But, um, and, you know, we did go into 22, sorry, we came out of 22 as the best performing sector and everyone basically was bullish oil and bearish the market, as you probably recall in 2023. 
that was just exactly wrong. I find it interesting that now people are bullish the market, which has been justified, obviously, so far in January, but the people are bullish the market and bearish oil, even though, you know, clearly the likelihood is you're going to get rotation at some point and people will stop buying NVIDIA and semis and the AI. We'll see. I mean, who knows how good NVIDIA's results are going to be. They've certainly been great all through 23. Um, but a couple of the Magnificent Seven are breaking down, notably Tesla. And we were on CNBC the other day saying short EVs, long shipping companies as a what, what I described as a Mickey Mouse trade. But, um, you know, it's a pretty simple way to play the current market because EVs definitely look like they've got grave, grave problems. Tesla, by the way, obviously reports on Thursday. So where is it Wednesday? This week, Tesla reports and um, we'll see how that comes out. Well, you know, it couldn't happen to a, a wackier guy, Elon. I just finally, and I'm a Tesla driver, right? So I'm a believer. I love the, I love the brand from a car perspective. Him managing the company is an annoyance that just that makes it the key man risk was just too much for me. And then when he starts lowering prices, which is great for consumers, great for demand pull but he's just destroying his margins and he doesn't care. So it makes it a difficult stock to own. And I've always thought the, the, the hybrids, thankfully the hybrids are getting more play because that is, the, that's the best of all worlds. You know, you, I mean, my wife has a Volvo and it's got a small little battery, but it, she only gets gas now twice, like once every two months. So yeah. if she got, if she got the new Volvo with twice the battery, she's only going to get gas, you know, every three or four months. And, and you still have the 500 mile range for your long trip. So to me, I'm surprised more companies haven't really created the hybrid demand. I mean, I know there's demand there, but it's still, you know, it still feels like this thing that's under, under talked about and probably the biggest opportunity for car, you know, for, for auto sales, but you know, who knows? Yeah, they, they, they kind of, they kind of screwed up. I mean, basically when we wrote about it in 2010, logically, um, you would have seen a massive growth in hybrids because of exactly what you just said. And then we thought EVs would come when they worked out how to make a better EV. And they they basically did that over the last 10 years. Um, but the automakers actually, they wanted to, there were two things, big mistakes they made. Number one is they wanted to sell SUVs because uh, they made so much more money on them. So they were essentially resistant to making the Tesla shift into the electric sedan. So we had noticed when we wrote about this in 2009-10 that a secondhand Prius cost more than a new one at the time. They were so hot. Uh, and then we realized actually Toyota doesn't want to make these things. They want to make Tundras. That's why there's not enough of them, even though the Prius was kind of light and noisy and kind of tinny. People really wanted to drive it for environmental reasons. And it, it you know, they would have sold more if they'd provided more to the market. And then the other mistake they made is they tried to go for the killer battery, the single big, you know, difference changing battery, whereas Tesla really literally just strapped together a whole load of double A's. And then they literally strapped together double A's. I mean, it's, it's pretty much what they did. And then they worked out the software to how to drain those efficiently. And that gave them a five or 10 year head start. And that's where we are today. Um, right. What I've observed here in Brooklyn was that when I was in the Hertz garage, the guy kept saying to the next customer, good news, we've upgraded you to a Tesla. This is about a year and a half ago, a year ago. And every customer that was offered a Tesla as a free upgrade rejected it and said, I, just give me my subcontact. I, I, I don't, I don't com compact. I don't want a Tesla because there isn't a charger in Brooklyn. There's literally not a single charger in Brooklyn. And Brooklyn in its own right is the fourth biggest city in the US. Right. And there's no charges. You can't get a parking place around here. And the last thing you want to do is start worrying about where you can plug the damn thing in. Right. So there's just zero adoption and people actively don't want them. And that's been kind of the story of the past week, amongst other things with Tesla has obviously been uh, Hertz, you know, just saying, actually, we give up yeah. at that Hertz in local Brooklyn. They didn't even have a charger, believe it or not. They had to take it to a mall in Queens and charge it for free at the mall. I mean, it was just like, what are you doing? Well, so there's a long way to go with these things, basically. Let, so, so let's, let's, I have a couple of questions that, you know, and I for, forgive me, I'm not the energy guy. So maybe this is a dumb question. Does the SPR matter anymore? And, and if it does, where are we in refilling that? I mean, is that, is that a source of future demand or, or since we produce so much internally, does it, does it even matter because we have energy security here? The SPR was hugely important because they were 
chunking out oil. I mean, they were pushing out a million barrels a day of oil from that thing into the Gulf Coast US refining system. And so, you know, we say that anything above 100,000 barrels a day, because oil is totally set at the margin, the price is set at the margin, anything above 100,000 barrels a day, whether it's a production outage or a change in demand patterns, that's globally meaningful. So if you think we think of 100,000 barrels a day as meaningful for them to be punching out a million barrels a day for months, I mean, I think it was for at least six months that they were punching this million into the market. That was hugely important in bringing down prices. The problem is they threw down half the SPR. Now, some people were like, oh, my God, you know, this is crazy. I actually met the young journalist who wrote the story about also the fact that the SPR was being sold directly to China which didn't, and it literally was. And, um, you know, that didn't amuse Congress. But ultimately, they couldn't keep going just because, you know, the pace they were going, they were going to run out the entire SPR. Now, you don't need as much SPR as you used to have because of that shift that I mentioned, that the US was importing 10 million barrels a day of oil plus in 2008-9 net. We've always been a trader of oil, but basically we were net short 10 million barrels a day um, which is just incredible to think about because it's only 15 years ago. And now we're exporting 2 million barrels a day. So obviously our oil security is arguably that we're self-sufficient and we actually barely need an SPR. And um, so I think it's fine to have drawn it down by half. You know, that's sort of a decent compromise. Now they're just dribbling oil back in. Absolutely nothing like what they pulled it out at. But they are building it somewhat. And they actually might be building it to dump the oil price into the election because now the SPR has essentially become a political tool. There was no physical crisis last year when they decided just to push down oil prices. And of course, I don't know where politics is right now. It's such a disaster area, but basically it was completely inconsistent with the Democrats stated aim of energy transition, right? To as soon as oil prices go high to bring them down, because the fact is that oil prices aren't high in the U S anyway. I mean, the gasoline price here is a, pretty much a third of what it is in Europe. Uh, but nevertheless, politicians are absolutely terrified of high gasoline prices. And so they just went all in to bring down the price of oil, which, as I said, just doesn't fit with their subsidizing electric cars, you know, attempting to lower emissions, everything else. It was completely intellectually inconsistent. But, you know, since when did politics ever make any intellectual sense anyway? <laughs> I mean, it's just complete. I mean, I don't understand how you can be pro-gun and anti-abortion for a start it doesn't to, to me it's you've got to you, you you got you got to go libertarian or not you know but anyway it's not relevant to all you yeah. never talk about guns they told me you know <laughs> it just piss people off <laughs> uh so so for for from an energy perspective i i mean listen we we know what makes money is buying low and selling high and mm -hmm. being contrarian and pr purchase price matters and you know, if you look at the three-year trailing period just before the pandemic hit, energy price, you know, energy stocks were like annualized at minus 14 or something, and nobody <laughs> wanted them, right? They were dead. They were 2% of the S&P in an ETF world. So few dollars go to that sector. Yeah. Fast forward, that was the best time to buy it, right? Nobody wants them, and it was the best time to be buying them. The next two years was just just crazy outperformance. So you know we're we're not back to a, a two or three year period, you know that where energy has been a radical underperformer. In fact, the last three years, energy's up twenty nine percent annualized. The market's up nine. So you know one could one could say, geez, energy's still above its you know kind of way of way over its skis relative to the long term so who knows but but that makes the, the the asset allocator the stock picker in me say well okay let's that's that's at the high level of the basket is there opportunities inside of the basket whether it's in the slumber jays and the halliburtons or the chevrons and the exxons or you know so you know the the valeros or the psx so curious where you you know understanding that sentiment's bad and this is probably a decent time to start looking at the sector within this within the energy patch. If overall, what areas uh, or, or pockets of of really excitement do you see? 
Yeah, I mean, so basically the alpha of the, the group, as you as you're really referring, hasn't been that bad. So it's the group hasn't it's it's sort of bouncing along a low level, as you mentioned, the XLE. But if you look at the chart, it's it's not been a total disaster. Actually, utilities were a disaster last year. Yeah. Um, you know, which tells you something about interest rates. But basically the oils were just very weak relative to the market, particularly in Q4, they were a disaster you know, as everything ripped higher. And, you know, clearly if people are going to buy semis, they're probably going to short oil to buy semis. You know what I mean? It just feels like the way the trade works. We we went the other way the other day on CNBC. I mentioned you said buy shipping and short EVs. Um, so thematically, we've held our alpha. We've just looked terrible when you, you know, you could have bought NVIDIA um, or the Magnificent Seven for that matter. And it's clear that when the Magnificent Seven begin to, to weaken, eventually somehow they have to, um, most of them have got very limited earnings growth, particularly Microsoft and Apple. And what you're seeing is entirely multiple expansion, you know, that you saw over the past year. And what we haven't been able to get is any multiple expansion in the oil. So essentially we're bouncing along the bottom of what the, the market perceives the yield to be. And my argument is that with yield, you can look at both the dividend yield and the buyback yield. And if you do that, for example, in refining, Every single refiner, except for one of those seven, are going to pay more than a 10% yield this year when you combine dividend plus buyback. Now, if you can sustain that, which I think they will, essentially you can buy an oil stock today and you'll have a zero basis within eight years, assuming that they can maintain the 10% payout, which I think they can. So it becomes a very boring and noble argument that essentially from the present, the purest form of equity valuation, which would be the present value of the future dividends and cash return, um, in PV terms, they're very attractive. It's just, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with NVIDIA over the next six months, and it's probably going to be bad for oil if it keeps going up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we'll see. And, you know, I think AI, I don't know it feels very much like the internet bubble whereby people knew it would be huge, but they didn't know how. And so they just bought everything internet and, and gave the, the sector a major financing, which then ended very badly. And I think with AI, the market is just blindly buying it on the basis that it will be huge, but you know, there's only a couple of things you can buy to actually get exposure to that. And so therefore you have to own them. So, you know, there you have tremendous growth and you're buying the future with oil. You've got this very boring argument that essentially, you know, for example, for my son, all of a sudden he he's still at college and all of a sudden he's interested in the 401k. I was like, you know, I don't know if you want to buy the market up here. Not, nevertheless, he did. I was certainly telling him to average in. But, um, you know, I was like, you know, from a long-term perspective, these oils are not going to be gone in eight years. But if you own them for 10 years, you'll essentially have a zero basis and everything you get will just be, and it'll still be presumably five to 10% yield. It's going to be, you know, very good money for giving your basis is zero. Yeah. So for him on a long-term investment point of view, it's kind of a no brainer, especially as all the themes we're talking about, which is, you know, the extent to which EVs are being successful, uh, the weight of population globally that doesn't use commercial energy somewhat you know, the lack of alternatives to oil, particularly in jet fuel, have become very clear to people, I think. Uh, and of course, petrochemicals, people are not doing a good job of using less. So all of these things tell you that the oil age is going to last longer than the next 10 years. And at that point, they're a great investment right here. For this year, particularly, I think what we're looking for is for inflation to stay higher than expected, which will happen partly because of everything that's going on in the Red Sea, um, Gulf of Arabia, all that stuff is inflationary. Um, no solution in Russia, Ukraine, Congress continuing to just write checks with complete abandon, uh, no attempt to balance budgets. <laughs> all of these things would strike me as inflationary. And what our big call from the lows in 2020, when I started Sankey Research, so I did make the trade, you know, I started at the bottom. Um, it was always an inflation trade. We always said, you know, if the Fed wants inflation, they're going to get too much inflation and that's going to be very bullish oil. So our play for this year is essentially, if you believe in inflation, you want to be long oil and short all the stuff that's gone up a ton that is essentially highly interest rate sensitive, which is to say the market has discounted really crazy number of rate cuts this year, starting shortly. And I just don't know, with all the economic data surprising to the upside, I don't know if we can really get to that level of cuts, which would 
again talk about a rotation so you would be long oil short hate to say it nvidia um <laughs> would be a would be a contrarian trade here very obviously and that's no doubt why i'm chatting to you well i i mean listen i you know if you think about it advisors listen to this podcast right they asset allocate for clients so they have lots of things that they want to do some growth, some value, some dividend. They tend to be very cautious with client money anyway. To me, and you know, tell me if I'm thinking about this wrong, the energy patch seems to be a, the more stable, predictable, almost like the staples type of investment. You're going to get good dividend. You're going to get a high absolute dividends, good dividend growth, good buybacks. Like you said, you're going to you're going to reduce your basis by to zero in you know eight years or so. And you're buying it at sentiment that's pretty low. And, and I'm not the energy guy. And I'm saying that I've I've added, I just started again. And I tend to trade these things rather than buy and hold them candidly. But this seems like a pretty good place to start adding them. So I started some Exxon. I like the LNG story from a growth perspective. Certainly love to hear your your view on LNG and Chenier. Um, they're, they're not part of the S&P yet, et cetera. But to me, it just seems like from if you're an allocator, this is a great steady eddy stable predictable the, the prices aren't stable predictable because it's commodities and blah 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 but if the fed is sitting there trying to hold back the economy for the last 18 months they can't do that forever as soon as they pull the tape the economy leis are going to rip back consumer sentiment's going to rip back energy prices should should rip back and to me that seems like a a bit of a no-brainer you know timing is always uncertain so you have to be willing to absorb some vol along the way but it just seems like if if assuming the fed doesn't hold back the economy forever which they can't and won't seems like energy prices have much more upside skew than downside yeah i mean i think generally they do um the the big issue last year was US production growth was so strong that it basically pressured global oil and natural gas prices in the US. And whether or not that sustains is probably the single biggest question of the year is, is how much of this growth is going to keep coming. We'll get an answer for that over the course of the next few weeks because the companies will all report and we'll give an outlook for 2024. But essentially, these are now very good companies. You know, you're talking Exxon, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, uh, Oxy. These are all very good operators. And what they're doing is they're squeezing a lot of oil and gas out of, you know, what used to be a, 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 a tight basin that was essentially being exploited by yahoos, or at least, you know, companies that just don't have the sophistication of those big guys. So as long as the US continues growing, the market's going to stay under some pressure. And as long as spec pasties out there in Saudi Arabia, you just can't get that excited about the oil price logically this year. Having said that, you're holding 75 brand, which is a very good price for these oils. You know, that they, they all set BP, for example, which we were criticizing for not appointing a new CEO last week. But looking at their financials, they've got a $4 billion buyback this year on a 4% yield. So you get a 9% yield effectively in BP. All of that is set at $60 oil. Now, of course, they often don't show up in the way they say they will, you know, they say we'll pay all this money at 60 and then mysteriously they can't do it at 70. But if you're at 75, they should comfortably cover that 10% yield and some, and they're all maintaining capital disciplines. So going back to your question of which subsectors we like, we don't really like service because it's expensive and we want capital discipline in the group. So although international spending is going up quite rapidly because of essentially the Middle East and, and some deep water stuff that's going on, um, the fact is that, you know, we still see Schlumberger, if you look at its results last week with a beat, it's trading, it was about 85 cents, I think they made, um, you know, call that 250, 260, uh, the stock's sort of at 20 times. Right. And we're not sure why you would pay 20 times for that when, I don't know where Meta is now, but it's probably 20 to 30 times, you know what I mean? So you've got Schlumberger up there with some of these big magnificent seven names, doesn't make any sense. Exxon is more like, we'll see what their earnings are, but it's more like 10 to 12 times. So we like the big boring oils, Exxon, Chevron, Conoco as a general concept because they're essentially doing the best and they have the better benefit from lack of spending and the potential for higher prices over time. By the way, when the US goes into decline, which it, it may do as the private companies get taken over and uh, 
activity rationalizes. When that happens, you're in a major bull cycle for oil prices, because what we're really looking for is when oil supply productivity rolls. So if you look back to the 60s and 70s, you had a long post-war period of increasing productivity in oil, which was very bearish supply, which was very bearish for prices. Then you had the formation of OPEC and wars in the Middle East, and that was very negative for productivity, and the price shot up, tripled. Then you had the emergence of non-OPEC, North Sea, Alaska, elsewhere, and essentially that became a productivity increase that was bearish for prices from the early 80s all the way through the late 90s, 20 years. But then the non-OPEC started to run out, and the productivity cycle turned again, and you had a major upcycle from 2000 through 2008, really through 2010, allowing for the global financial crisis. And then you had the emergence of the US productivity growth, which has been bearish prices and bearish the sectors, sector ever since 2010. And we're still seeing increased productivity. And so we're still seeing the group unpopular and uh, the productivity cycle still increasing, which is bearish oil prices. Hence, one of the videos I recorded on my YouTube channel, uh, hint, hint, Sankey Research YouTube channel, the most viewed video was last year when I was talking about the Saudis may have to dump the oil market in order to bring discipline to the US uh, EMP sector. We'll see how things work out this year. If demand is strong, they probably won't need to and they can increase again, but they hate losing market share to Iran. They hate it when the Russians lie to them and they lose market share to Russia and both those things are happening. So Saudi is already pretty scratchy. And if they decide to to turn the boat over and just get rid of the excess supply in the market, they're going to have to go over after the US EMP industry. And that would be at $60 oil, only below 60 would the US industry change its plans right here. And therefore, you could see a very negative outlook for oil if that was to happen. But generally speaking, that would also represent a rollover in the, the productivity cycle. So you would definitely buy, you know, if Saudi starts a market share war this year, you would definitely be piling into the oils because that would then turn the productivity cycle long-term positive and that would be very bullish. It will turn eventually. It has to. You know, you can't keep on generating this kind of growth in the US. And as a result, you know, you are looking to get into the oils over the next year, two years for when that productivity cycle rolls. We thought it might be last year, but in fact, forecasts were for the US to have a very strong year of growth, adding about a million barrels a day of liquids production, a million barrels a day from the US alone. Um, in fact, they added a million and a half barrels a day. So they, you know, they massively outperformed last year and stunned everyone with their productivity. And that's become, that's one of the key reasons why the, the sectors in the doldrums relatively right now, we need to rationalize the surprise of the supply side. Demand is the big problem of demand going away is not happening. So demand is still great. Okay, so demand short term, I don't know, you know, if I if I look, if I think about the price of oil, it seems like it just bounces around in a range most of the time. Is that is that true? I mean, pegging, you know, yeah, I mean, buy the oils when you're at the bottom of the range and selling them when they're at the top of the range that that that's for traders who manipulate markets to me. It just seems like, you know, you're a company. And your product ha it has some volatility attached to it. But if you're disciplined in your finances and the companies seem to be finally disciplined after, you know, years of being very undisciplined, it seems like if you can stand the vol in the underlying product that you traffic in, but you're good at financial engineering and you're buying back stock and you're doing the right projects and making the right acquisitions, it seems like a pretty good business. Yeah, I mean, I was with the biggest portfolio manager in New York the other day, and she said, yeah, you just buy them at 70, buy them below 70 and sell them above 90. And you can see if you look at the XLE, uh, it doesn't go above 100 ever. Uh, it happens to actually just kind of conveniently somewhat coincide with the uh, the oil price, the XLE. Do you have a level on the XLE right now? Uh, Yeah, let me see. XLE... See if my theory works. The raging buy at 80.52 at the bottom of the range. Yeah, so basically that's kind of, it doesn't quite work, but it's sort of, you know, 
where the oil price is nearly i mean the oil price is more like 75 brent which is the what we we look at the international price which is brent uh and then consider wti the us price obviously um so yeah i mean if you look at, i don't think it's ever broken 100 has it not that i can say no yeah exactly so once you know oil gets above 90 100 the, the market just stops paying for them right um the question is are we at the bottom of the are we really at the bottom here and as I mentioned, in fact, if you look at the Dallas Fed survey of U.S. exploration and production companies, which comes out every quarter, and they ask questions directly to the industry, um, you've got to remember this, I think 5,000 U.S. exploration and production companies, um, you know, you've heard of 20 of them, uh, but there's a lot of people doing a lot of things out there. And this Dallas Fed survey is pretty comprehensive. Anyway, they, across all basins, it looks like $60 is the point at which companies would change their capex plans which would be cut capex and um you know we're a long way from that we're at 70 plus wti just about and um you know there's another 10 dollars downside before they before they stop growing essentially they are consolidating so as you know you've had exxon pioneer chevron hess you know the list goes on exxon Denbury. that somewhat reduces activity but uh, in fact, when Exxon bought Pioneer, they increased their growth forecast, which we speculated was with an eye towards Washington and the FTC. You know, they didn't want to buy Pioneer and announce they were firing everyone and reducing out the outlook for production growth because that could be unpopular in Washington. But essentially, we haven't seen a significant wobbling of the growth plans of the big oils to the point where you get convinced that this productivity situation is rolling over. It's a long way of saying we we are holding 75 brands at the moment, but is that really the bottom? It doesn't feel like it. It feels like demand is still too strong globally. We would have to see a significant recession stroke downturn in demand because it's very closely, you know, oil demand is closely related to economic activity and the economy is doing amazing, right? I mean, I think the most staggering number of last year for me was Q3 GDP in the US doing 5% growth um you know that was just an incredible number to me and that that's to say it's hard to believe that you're at the bottom of the cycle in oil at the moment even though we're holding 75 quite nicely so i don't know yeah you can buy them here for a trade i think because we we believe that the interest the interest rate cutting trade has been wildly overcooked over the past four months and the cyclical strength uh that we're seeing I think is, you know, continued strength in the economy should mean a rotation back into cyclicals at some point over the coming months. Uh, you can't keep buying NVIDIA forever. And I think if the economy keeps coming, and especially if inflation is driven by the strong economy, you would expect oils to outperform the market along with other cyclicals. Absolutely. So I think there's a number of reasons why tactically I can see a good trade here for oils. I just don't know if it's a screaming buy because I don't think it is until we see a real brutal down cycle and they tend to be brutal. Yeah. It, is there <laughs> conspiracy theory alert, conspiracy theory alert. I mean, the manipulation of the markets. I mean, I, I've, I've always struggled with something that's a vital commodity be having such a robust paper market that can distort prices when you know the price of a vital commodity goes to zero is a good example i mean do you do you think part of this is just paper market manipulation and and the oil markets can't be really free to go where they might go up or down because you have this paper market pushing things in in different directions no i think you know i don't think it's it's not nfts you okay. know, it's it's um there's too much real oil demand and you know there's a hundred million barrel a day market the biggest traded commodity in the world underneath all this so yeah there is a huge amount of additional paper trade that that you know the first quant players i'm sure you're aware the first algorithm players they were all massive trading in oil because it's so liquid but you can't over time ultimately force the price to a place that it doesn't want to be you know you, you have to understand that there's such a real market that all of us use. You know, this is one of one of my bugbears with the environmental movement. All of these people are using 16 barrels. If they're really efficient, they're using 16 barrels of oil ahead compared to 18 as the US average. You're still massively oil dependent every every single thing you do all day, you know. 
um amazon is a good example you know people buy so much stuff and return so much stuff on amazon all of that is oil fired um all the products that they make and sell you are basically involving oil so people you know so so continue the dependence on oil is is so complete that that you know i just find it hypocritical when people start to say things like just stop oil it's like come on man get real <laughs> but um i'm way off track there what was i talking about uh, no, we were just talking about paper markets manipulation, but that's- Oh, yeah. So my point is that that was the point, is that there's such a big real underlying market. And I always think the Saudis are way too hung up on speculative interest. You know, the oil industry is super efficient, so there's almost no inventory held. Disruptions are so radical because it's a just-in-time industry. So basically, you start skipping tankers. Each tanker is 2 million barrels. And so, you know, relatively, you know, a Houthi attack or something can directly impact the market at the margin immediately even though the houthis aren't doing a very good job they're creating enough upset to make the tankers avoid them and that just adds cost you know to the to the barrel and it's all very ultimately transparent given the size of the market and the number of players in it that don't want you to know what they're doing you know because it's not like the traders are going to tell you this is our positioning or whatever uh, 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 in amongst all of that, you have massive speculative interest, which to me is it just makes the market more efficient, but likely to be more volatile. And I, I really don't get hung up on it. Okay. Well, so we, like you said, you referenced the, the the big deals. I mean, somewhere in the fifty fifty five billion dollar range with Chevron and Exxon in particular. Any of those, you know, what what were what was your response when you heard them? Was that a bullish thing? Is there one deal? Do you like Exxon with Pioneer better than Chevron? You know, more international. You know, just curious about the the M and A and and whether you think that's a, a smart positive thing or if that's they overpaid or you know any thoughts are are terrific. Well, I mean, again, going back to the productivity cycle, there is a major question mark over the inventory that these companies have for the next five and ten years. And you can see that, you know, the deals are being done. Pioneer was the best remaining inventory, the, the, the biggest remaining inventory in the Permian. Hess has this absolutely stunning Guyana exposure, which is, you know, the best remaining barrels of oil um, offshore in the world, most profitable with the best co contract terms in Guyana, all in the Western Hemisphere, you know, outside the Middle East. So that's just a phenomenal asset. What's been really striking is that the premiums that the companies paid for these deals just haven't been high at all. And obviously, when you're investing in oil, one of your jackpot moments is finding out the company you own has been taken over. And these things have been selling themselves to, for three and four times, you know, EBITDA. And it's just like, wow, that was just not a great price, really not far off where they've been trading. Yeah. And the in, stocks, in, there were a lot of the stock wasn't Chevron's deal, pretty much all stock and the stocks just gotten crushed. So right. It yeah, got it so, even cheaper. Right. And, you know, people, including me, were talking Hess 200. You know, I think the deal went out at 170 and is now probably worth 145. So, yeah, it's that that's been disappointing. And it, you know, does raise the question of why these guys are prepared to sell themselves. And a lot of it, unfortunately, is to do with change of control provisions where the CEO makes, you know, 50, 60, 100 million dollars from selling the company. Once again, we find ourselves with the management's misaligned against the shareholders in terms of, you know, what's been their interests in terms of the price they'll accept to let their company be taken over when, you know, the guy's going to clip 50 million bucks. I mean, for 50 million bucks, I'd throw the shareholders under the under the bus, I guess. Um, you know, it's not a charity. So the change of control provisions have been a problem. The other one is that uh, we thought about this takeover trend and we wrote a note called the heavyweight theory of uh, US EMP, where we realized that essentially the markets reversed itself from what used to be a view that there was not enough oil and gas in the world. And therefore, any company that could grow would grow returns because oil prices would have to be higher in the future. So we're running out of oil and gas. Oil prices will be higher in the future. Any company that grows would be growing returns because of higher prices in the future. Around 2018, Concho and the Permian had a, a major failure where it turned out they couldn't increase downspacing on a major pilot project they had. Downspacing is just drilling more wells in less space, downspacing. And what they were finding is that actually they were losing productivity by by excessive downspacing. And that gave major question marks to the whole remaining U.S. inventory. 
as soon as you started to worry about the inventory, you started punishing the companies where inventory was perceived 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 to be uh, low. So, for example, a Marathon Oil or a Devon began to really get hurt by concerns that they would have to make acquisitions in order to address their inventory problems. At the same time, we noticed a company that almost nobody knows anything about called Civitas, which is a new name for previous companies. By growing, they made it a step-out acquisition in the Permian, and the multiple increased, and the company's valuation went up. And we realized that actually that now the market's paying for size in big oil, and the bigger you get, the better, which is why we like Exxon, Chevron, Conoco, because those will be the premium companies that people want to own. And as long as they're buying smaller companies for no premium, nobody's interested in the smaller companies. And I can tell you that nobody is interested in stocks of lower than $5 billion of value. No, no serious investors care less about oil stocks that are lower than $5 billion of value. They've got too many other things that are big and decent that they can buy without having to worry about all that hair, especially as the oil price outlook is not that bullish because perversely, the the productivity of the industry is so high that they're, they're munching through the inventory, which is one problem, but also they're, they're basically pressuring the oil price. So, you know, the problem with this industry is always that you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know, we don't have the intellectual property of AI or Coca-Cola. Uh, you know, it's a commodity. And the better the companies get at producing it, the more they pressure the oil price and the less people want to own the companies. So, it's you know, the companies are absolutely great at the moment, but um, nobody wants to own them because they're so good. And it's just one of those perverse things. The only the only way out of it, as I say, that you can say, well, look, the, the companies are low value relative to their cash return. And therefore, they're a good investment because they're unpopular and because they have high cash returns, which are the highest that they've been in history. And, you know, it's crazy that we've got to that position and nobody wants to own them. But it is what it is. Well, I don't know. It feels a little like uh, 95 through 99 when all people wanted to own was was tech and biotech and spec tech and everything else kind of lagged. And then we finally hit that moment where, you know, you pulled forward 10 plus years worth of returns for whatever revenue was going to be generated from the Internet, et cetera. Now, AI. And then people are going to realize that's probably not realistic. And and then, you know, you have two ugly years in speculative and and tech in particular with wonderful returns for, for you know, energy and value stocks and low PE stocks, et cetera. I mean, we're who knows where we are in that cycle, but you know, it's probably coming. Yeah, it will rotate, as I say. I mean, it's, 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 and, you know, with oil, there's always something that comes from left of field that you didn't expect. You know, at the moment, what we saw last year was a lot of the crazy people Russia, Venezuela, Iran, Iraq. I mean, there's a long list of crazy people in oil. Um, and by the crazy, of course, I mean crazy governments. Right. Um, you know, essentially they all performed very well simultaneously. And that's extremely un unusual, obviously. Um, but you just had this combination of very strong US supply growth with um, really good performance from places like Libya. And that 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 was, you know, that became the problem of too much supply that caused Saudi to have to cut. And then Saudi cuts become very bearish. So there's that one sector we like for cash return that's very good, very good management is refining. We just think that, you know, you're structurally short energy infrastructure in the US. You really can't add it. We'll see if Trump one other thing to be nervous about is Trump winning just because by almost by tradition the oils perversely do well under Democrats and badly under Republicans. And it's just one of those kind of crazy opposite world things about oil. But the potential is for people to, for, you know, people were very enthusiastic for the oil sector when Trump came to power, but actually we had a terrible four years. <laughs> and then of course people were doom and gloom when Biden got in and we've had a great four years, except for this last year, which wasn't even that terrible. Oh. So, um, you know, there is a concern that Trump deregulating will tend to uh, will tend to pressure prices to the downside. We'll see. I mean, it's hard to actually rationalize why it happens the way it happens, because it's not always that logical. Um, in the case of Biden, for example, obviously Russia invading Ukraine. You know, would that have happened under a Republican president? You know, you've got to question that. But um, that was obviously the, the single biggest driver of all making it to 100 during the Biden administration. Well, by God, it's a sad commentary on uh, the largest economy in the world when the two choices that you're presented are uh, an egomaniac 
wild man and a senile, lovely old man. <laughs> that, no, it's absolutely should, lamentable. There should be I mean, some choices, more choices. No, it's lamentable. It's, it's very concerning. I mean, it's just like, yes. what the hell is going on here? I mean, the clips of Biden, you just just mind-blowing and then trump is no better i mean but jamie diamond who i respect was saying you know the thing about the irony of trump is it's it's about his ego it's not about his policies his policies can be a bit wild but if you know ultimately they kind of make sense yeah and um he's just a terrible in, in a crazy messenger. sort of way but my god what a messenger you know and then um and then with joe it's just not even sure that who's in charge i mean people say it's the chief of staff and jill that run the country yeah, but if you look around the world, um, I mean, there's some. This it's interesting how youthful the new prime minister of France is. I mean, that's completely crazy. But years ago, ten years ago, I was in Australia, and a guy, a top politician, said to me, "The only thing more unpopular than the government is the opposition," <laughs> and that struck me as a line fifteen years ago. And if I look back at you know, particularly in the UK as well, what you've had is just you know, a series of poli of, of governments that are the only thing that's popular about them is they're less unpopular than the opposition. So it's, it just seems to be a function of the modern world, which is kind of inexplicable. I don't know why there hasn't been a better set of candidates. I mean, when Trump was in the primaries originally, the other candidates, the other Republican candidates were worse than him. Yeah. By some way, you know, and I was like, who are these people? I mean, there were six of them and they were all absolutely atrocious. Um, and of course, Trump won it. But uh, it's 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 concerning because these guys are really old and kind of crazy or yeah. incompetent with some combination of the two. So last last question for you. Any thoughts? I don't know if you follow uh, the LNG market, the value, where it fits in, Chenier in particular. There, you know, there's just it, it seems like that is a, uh, you know, an emerging I don't even know if I want to say competitor. It just seems like, you know, another way for, you know, global markets to to have energy. And it seems like the world is moving clean energy in some form or fashion, whether that's, you know, marketing or not. Just curious what your your view is on on the LNG space in general. Well, I started in LNG, basically. I was a consultant at Wood McKenzie and because I'd covered Asia, I did a lot of work on LNG. And then with the emergence of the Trinidad project in the late 90s, there was a brilliant man called Gordon Shearer, who's still a major consultant in the LNG. And he was just saying that this project is going to revolutionize the LNG market because essentially we're going to trade LNG. There'll be times when we operate unprofitably uh, because it's it's summer. Uh, we're going to have secondhand ships. There was a whole list of things. They project financed it. There was a whole load of things that essentially meant that the global LNG market would become traded, fully freely traded. And so for years, I've been bullish on it. And Chenier has been just one of the outstanding and very few examples of how to play that. So we argue that Shell should break itself up, probably merge with BP, break up the two companies, and then actually spin out Shell Global LNG as a standalone LNG play because it's the best LNG company in the world. And with Shell, you have to buy a whole load of other crap that you really don't want to own if you just want to own the LNG theme. If you look, I mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, China's using over 50 million barrels a day of oil in coal equivalent, or I should say coal in oil equivalent. That really needs to be replaced with gas over time. So China, the story is extremely bullish. If you look at what's going on with Russian gas, it's extremely bullish for LNG demand in Europe. And if you look at the price arbitrage, you're at over $10 per MMBT in Europe, and you're at under $3 here. You got, as you know, the, the Chenier economics of public, uh, you got to pay 1.5 times Henry Hub plus their processing fee, plus shipping across the Atlantic. It all adds up to about six bucks. So essentially, even at $10 European gas in a warm winter-ish, uh, you still have a major arbitrage, especially with the abundance of U.S. gas. And so LNG is going to continue to be a mega theme. It's also very clear, and it frustrates me that people don't get this even now, that if you want to have a load of wind and solar, you have to have natural gas backup if you're not going to do Absolutely. nuclear. And if you're not doing nuclear, you really have no choice but natural gas. Um, as long as batteries don't work yet, and they kind of don't. Although I noticed that now, at times, California has more electricity supplied by batteries than it does from nuclear. If you look at the nuclear supply, it's 24-7, whereas the batteries only do two or three hours a day. 
The bottom line, as you'll see from California having to import more and more natural gas, is that because of the variability of solar and wind, the footprint of natural gas, which is really tiny relative to the amount of power you get out of it, and the flexibility of its ability to be turned on and off very quickly, means that globally you just need more and more natural gas in order to offset all your additional solar and wind. And so the story for LNG is outrageously bullish. The problem with Chenier, and it has been for 20 years, and I say it every year and it stays bullish, the problem for Chenier is just it's very efficiently priced. So essentially, the market knows exactly what it's worth on any given day. Looking at it here, actually, I've just got the charts up. It, it looks like 160 is a really good level for this thing, and we're at 162. But that's just eyeballing the chart. I'm not sure why it's under downward pressure, um, but it's certainly at 140. looks like it's got a very strong level. And, you know, the problem is that the market prices it so efficiently that it's you know, it has some spot exposure. So if the LNG price goes crazy, they make a bit more money. But essentially, it's just this is another good example of an asset that you would own, um, you know, for the next 50 years, because it's such a good business. Um, and I mean, is there the any M&A? I mean, when you look at the the Chevron and the Exxon deals, you know, 50 plus billion for companies in their own category with much less operating metrics, and then you have an LNG at 38 billion in market cap. I mean, is is there any of that potential? Is what would anybody want to get into that business? Or well, that is... the, yeah, for us, the MLPs, I mean, part of the same theme is if you look at some of the MLP players, they're very undervalued. And what mm -hmm. you're seeing today, for example, with Sunoco, which is a good bit of it is owned by energy transfer, but Sunoco is buying Newstar. And so we do expect to see continuing consolidation in all pipeline assets, which we think are just worth owning. Uh, you know, we like enterprise a lot. That's just an incredible play on the arbitrage between U.S. Uh, uh, NGL pricing, natural gas liquid pricing and global pricing. It's just a phenomenal story. Um, we love Plains All-American, you know, the pipeline company. Kinder's got its analyst meeting on Wednesday. These are really good companies. Um, again, very boring, you know, I mean, you're going to get a nine, eight, nine percent yield out of them, uh, maybe six or seven for a kinder. Um, is that really exciting? Well, it, you know, you'll be really happy you owned it in 20 years time. You know, it'd be a great gift for your grandkids if you buy it today. So um, infrastructure is good. And, and you know, that also forms part of our bull argument for refining. So we like refining. We don't like service. We like the big guys. We're not so interested in the small guys. And uh, we like the MLPs. And overall, we're a little bit depressed at the moment. You know, I say I'm not screaming by here. Um, but, you know, I do think these things remain a very good long-term opportunity. And uh, the major problem with their relative performance has been the other stuff going up so fast, not these things going down so fast, you know, <laughs> which is right. by the standards of oil is kind of a victory. Yeah, and people chase performance. So we, you know, we get it. But you know, if you if you get it, I listen, I, I use the phrase all the time. I love to get to a party early so I can get a good seat. And I love yeah. a, a, as people get, you know, stupid and drunk and, you know, uh, spilling beer all over themselves. I start inching my way towards the door. And that's, you know, using that analogy for the stock market. <laughs> I, I like I like to get to the party early so I can get a good seat. That does require you to put up with a little bit of volatility if you're trying to catch falling knives. But when I look at energy, and again, I'm not even the energy guy. I mean, this is not, it, this does not tend to be where where I play. I'm a I'm a tech consumer discretionary and communication services kind of guy because that's where brands live. But when I look at energy, because I'm always scanning my 200 brands to to see what is out of favor, and then I look at the technicals to see what's inflecting and what might be too oversold, even if it's a short term trading opportunity to me i just keep looking at energy and going man you know and i this last week i finally started dipping a little my toes in i i, I like exxon over chevron but i you know i think they're they all tend to trade together and i like i said i'm i'm bullish on the lng story so i i like lng but you know you probably make money and i guess maybe the the last question i'm curious about your thoughts on oxy with with buffett i mean is that one obviously has a lot more correlation to 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 crude prices. So if you're a believer that energy that that crude goes up, maybe oxy has a a little more juice in it. But any view on oxy or why why yeah. oxy for for Berkshire and they just keep buying it as it's under sixty? 
one by the way one group i forgot to completely forgot to mention which we've liked and has been the best performing group in oil is actually gas station companies so uh Musa, like Musa murphy usa has a 25 okay. of outstanding stock buyback ahead of it um element element alimentation touche card touche tard uh, oh yeah a, circle k they own yeah, circle k right ACT is the ticker in Canada, but but Musa is in the US and then Casey's. All of these things are doing great because the industry is consolidating. This is such a boring sector to own, you know, but they've been great performers. Um, and as the industry continues to consolidate, which it will, um, they're just making much better margins than they used to. They, these guys like the number one hot, hot dog sellers in the US and stuff. And um, Additionally, in a recession, unfortunately, people tend to shop more at the gas station as well. So the outrageously defensive names. Um, we I lost you there for a minute. You there? Yeah, hang on. I think I managed to change the microphone. Oh, you're back in. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so Exxon, we prefer to Chevron. I agree with you there because Chevron's got an ongoing problem with its major Kazakhstan project. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be scared of that all year. So people are going to be reluctant to buy into that thing until it's actually delivering oil, which has been delayed a year. It's a monster project in a really risky place, namely Kazakhstan. So that Exxon's in better shape there with also with more refining in Exxon. I prefer Exxon because we like, we kind of like refining here. Uh, we do like refining here, actually. All of the refining companies were at my conference and they were all good. Um, on Oxy, it's not that lever two oil. Actually, I have to correct you on that because oh, okay. Buffett buys it if it goes below sixty, and so what you would see is it's not it's beta two oil has been reduced by Buffett lowering its cost of capital. They did just do another expensive acquisition, which we were kind of gobsmacked that they would do another acquisition. Um, Buffett said he doesn't want to take the whole thing over; he'll only go to fifty one percent. But at the moment, he's at like twenty seven percent. So essentially, he's buying. Um, anytime the stock's below 60 and that makes it super defensive. And I think any weakness until he gets to 50%, he'll just buy more. And we see that very clearly in the filings. He's constantly buying it. Yeah. He's so of Chevron, by the way, and it wouldn't be ridiculous for Chevron to take over Oxy. So there's some potential for Oxy as a takeover candidate, although Buffett has um has cranked up the multiple. You know, the stock is trading quite rich now. Okay. But, you know, it's definitely makes it hugely defensive. If you want juice, our top pick, actually, I totally forgot to mention, is Permian Resources. That's another relatively new company that came out of private equity. It's got two 30-something CEOs who are super impressive. Everyone in Midland loves them. They love Midland, even though they were brought up in privileged Dallas. They both live in Midland and love it. Midland being the oil capital of the U.S., uh, depending on how you view Houston. And... Um, that Permian Resources is the best, cheapest pure play in the Permian that we see today, and we want to own that. The one that we have loved for the past two years has been Diamondback, but that one's done very well and it's kind of outperformed, and so we're pushing Permian Resources harder. Diamondback may ultimately buy Permian Resources as well, so you would tend to want to be long PR is the ticker, and that's our top EMP pick for the year. And then one other wild card is Galp out of Portugal, the reason being they're exposed to the Namibia oil fines, and it looks like Namibia is going to be the next Guyana. So if you believe that John Paul Getty said, if you want to get rich, all you got to do is get up early, work hard, and discover oil, um, then uh, Namibia is the next big thing in our view. And that you get through Shell, Total, and of all things, Galp out of Portugal. I think that what's Portuguese. Galp? How do you? What's the symbol on that one? I'm just looking that one up. Galp. <laughs> G-A-U-P? G-A-L-P. Galp. Galp. Interesting. Okay. Well, if you see the chart, you can probably see it popping on the latest Namibia news. Right. It popped in early January. Hang on. Well, let, we we can we can put, let's see, PR for Permian Resources trading about 13.3, Exxon 96.98 right now. I don't I don't have Galp. Uh oh, G. Galp Energy ADR, as it does have an ADR, and its ticker yeah. is GLPEY. Right? Yeah, if you put put a billion dollars into that, you're probably going to be in a roach hotel. <laughs> so, um, it's a much prettier chart, for sure. 
It's th th that latest spike that you saw as of 2024 was news flow from Namibia coming in with with big. They essentially they discovered almost as much in Namibia in five wells as they did in Guyana with 20. So everyone's super excited about it in the oil industry. That's wow. all next generation stuff, then. Right. All right, Paul. All right, man. Paul Sankey, SankeyResearch.com. That's S-A-N-K-E-Y research.com. Uh, always good to catch up with you on energy mm -hmm. and what part of energy you like. And now we have now we have a frame of reference um, to to shoot for the next time we have a conversation and we can look back. And I know you did. Let's try your is there another outside of your CNBC pairs trade? Anything else interesting? Long something. Uh, the, the shipping stock there was Ardmore, A-R-D-M-O-R-E. And I got that from a couple of Norwegian um former Morgan Stanley guys who know their stuff and they like Ardmore, the tankers, the tanker stock, which is, you know, I said on CNBC, it's a bit Mickey Mouse because these things have moved a lot, but there's very low trust in that industry and they're still cheap and they're big dividend pairs. I'm a dividend hog, basically. Nothing wrong with that. Well, there is something wrong with it, which is I look at like NVIDIA or Tesla and I'm just like, how the hell did I not own shares in these things? <laughs> well, you need to own the brands fund for your go-go stuff and then you uh -huh. can own your energy and your dividend pairs and together how you, how you guys barbell. doing how's your performance good good last year yeah. we we're up 42 and a half so we you Whoa. know and, and the funny thing is we didn't have any nvidia i i didn't nice. even have any tesla i had tesla for a little while and then i got i got bored with his shenanigans you know our big picks you know DraftKings was up over 100 uber was up over 100 um lulu had a good year up 50 you still Mercado like uh, I still like DraftKings. I think it's still a double from here. I, I just, I, I just think this is they have proven that them and uh, FanDuel and all the others can still make money. It's you know it's a very it's a very volatile stock. I tend to trade around the core. You know I have a core position in it, and then when it gets beat up, like you know a couple of weeks ago, it, it kind of went from thirty eight or so down to thirty two, and I just created a tactical trading and sold out of it actually on Friday and had, it was like a 14% gain. So keep your core holding and then trade around it when the vol comes. And uh, you know, so we, we like a bunch of those kinds of names. Yeah. I'm DraftKings perfect user. You know, I have like a $1,000 a year loss budget, which that's right. Actually, <laughs> at the moment I'm at 1.8,000. So I'm doing okay this year. Good for last, you. Last Can you start picking weeks. for me? <laughs> I'm just a dream. Uh, I'm just a dream customer for DraftKings, and actually, my son is using it, but he's he's betting more like ten bucks to the throw. But yeah. um, I'm more like a hundred bucks to the throw. But the I do prefer it to FanDuel, and I I do too. For the sure, say why. Yeah, it seems to be. I think so. I don't understand any of this um, other stuff they have in there. You know, all the all the sort of fantasy and stuff. I have no idea what's going on. But um, no, it's it's. Uh, I'm interested in actually owning some of that just because I use it. Um, all right. Um, well, yeah, so the, the, the product is available online. Um, and if you want to get start receiving it, just send me an email. And then eventually, if you read it, we'll start charging you. There you go. You, okay. we, it's one of those things you, you call it the fir your, your first hits free, and then we're going to charge you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the way it works. All right, buddy. Good to talk all to right. you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks. Eric, talk buddy. to you again. Bye. See ya.